welcome to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast, where every week we review each episode of HBO's original television series, Six Feet Under, with your host and licensed funeral director, Victor Rubio. Hello and welcome to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast. I'm your host and licensed funeral director, Victor Rubio, and today we are here to discuss episode 12 of season one, titled A Private Life. I'm here today with probably the smartest person to have graced our podcast, uh, Ken Schneck, who is the host of This Show is So Gay podcast. Hello, Ken. How are you? I am great. I am really excited to have you. you know, uh, Ken, when I was doing some background info on you, you know, just we were talking before we had met through Twitter. And as I usually do my Twitter search to promote the podcast, I came across yours. Uh, we spoke for a bit. And as I always like to do, I, I listened to a podcast, if I could, of a guest of mine that's coming on just to, you know, get a vibe and feel of their conversation. And when I went to listen to yours, you know, besides it being incredibly uh, uh, tight, you know, concise, something else, I, I walked away, I was like, <laughs> and then once I done uh, research on you, uh, sort of intimidated by how smart you are and your guests are. Your show uh, is... <laughs> I had no idea where this was going to go. I'm like, and, and you walked away feeling like your show was so, and I thought it was going to be gay, but like, intimidating and... and uh, wow, are you wrong? But I'll take them and thank you. I mean, if if, if I if I had any any saying it, I'd be like, I wouldn't rename your podcast. This show is so smart because every time you have someone on, it's someone who's way more thoughtful and has so much more insight into everything that what I've heard. Um, so you know, I just I just I was like, whoa! And then I looked it up, and you're if you don't mind just laying your credentials out just a bit because I see you do have a PhD. I do have a PhD. I thought it was going to be that I'm from New Jersey, but no, I, I, uh, that's the real credential. Yes, I, I do have a PhD. I'm a uh, professor of education at Baldwin Wallace University, right outside of Cleveland, Ohio. So, I my students are not intimidated by me. Uh, so, I, I would suspect it will wear off quite quickly if it hasn't already. <laughs> and like I was saying before, can you ha- you host the this show is so gay podcast? And you know, if you wouldn't mind just telling our audience a little bit about it, uh, if I could preface it with, you know, the show Six Feet Under, uh, as we were talking before, it was at least how I envision it was sort of a pioneer TV show of sorts for the LGBT community. So I assume I have some members, you know, listening to this podcast. So with that being said, if that factors at all into your podcast, what's your angle on the podcast? Like how, what's, sell us on your podcast because it's a great podcast. <laughs> Very gay. Um, we've been doing the show is so gay for, for eight years now. This is, uh, we are, we are in our ninth year. Actually started out on a terrestrial radio station in Southern Vermont and then okay. quickly just started podcasting each episode. Uh, when I made the move from Vermont to Cleveland, the, the radio show went with me and we're on about 30 stations across the country. And then a lot of folks listen through podcasting. So it's, it's a little bit different for me because I have to edit out each and every cuss word, which is a little bit annoying, uh, (laughs) my comedian guests, but my whole goal is there are these incredible folks out there using their voices in really unique ways to make a difference for the LGBTQ community. And mm-hmm. so I just try to highlight um, incredible people that you've heard of and then folks that you might not have heard of. So everyone from really presidential candidates to governors to this week's episode actually has Margaret Cho on it. So that was for wow. me a huge moment because I 
she's a she's just a hero of mine. So having her on, but then the second half of the show is this guy named Ryan J, and he's a syndicated movie and TV reviewer, and I love having him on, just talking about what great movies are out there right now and what inventive gay content is out there in the world. So I, it's just great. It's I have never lost my being awe, uh, being awed that people want to be on the show, and so I, I, I love doing it. I love doing it. And Ken, with that being said, uh, on my end at least, I I didn't want any regular guest who likes this show. Uh, sort of my guest f- so far on on you know we're, I'm just obviously twelve episodes in, you know just kind of been people I know who like this show or just other funeral directors. For this episode in particular, uh, I wanted a gay male. And it's a heavy episode. Uh, somehow, over the 11 episodes I've done so far, I've kind of glossed over uh, the impact of, you know, one of their main characters, David's sexuality, and, you know, really digging into it. So, Ken, before we get into it, how do I say this? How could you sum up or explain or summarize, you know, kind of your viewpoint on David and his... Uh, for lack of a better term, struggling sexuality up to this point in the show. Yeah, if, by the way, you know, was there sort of, a episode you could have had me on? There wasn't like <laughs> a, a Six Feet Under Bar Mitzvah episode that I could have done. That would have been amazing. So, <laughs> yeah, we're going to have the darkest episode and Ken is on. Exactly. <laughs> one where everyone dies. Yeah. Um, David was huge. And look, you got to put this in its context. So the context is, is 2001, right? Right, right. So under his starting is 2001 and and i actually just talked about this on on i just recorded my episode for this week and uh matthew shepherd was murdered in 1998 it was barely before the first couple episodes of six feet under so we're right. talking about a climate and obviously this sets up this episode as well but where we as a country are starting to struggle with what it means to have hate crimes and have people actually stand up and say, you know what, that's not okay. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not okay to treat our brothers and sisters like this, our neighbors like this. So David was kind of the uh, archetype of the the closeted male. And so it's actually quite impressive that, I don't want to ruin the ending of this episode, but that he does the coming out process in episode 12 is really significant because there are mm-hmm. any number of other TV shows out there where, you know, let's take Ellen, for example, who, who doesn't come out for way more than 12 episodes. So <laughs> you gotta, I think, I'd be curious, other people in the LGBT community watching this episode uh, and, and watching Six Feet Under and thinking, oh, it's not that groundbreaking. Okay, if you think that, then you're thinking in 2017. You really need to be thinking about 2001 when the climate was completely different. But I still think it is groundbreaking even today. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's kind of a common theme in almost every episode I've done where it's not even that David's gay. It's he's he's... I wish I had a better word. He's bluntly gay. Like, they throw it in your face. It's not, when he kisses another man, it's not a peck on the lips or the cheek. It's it's aggressive. Just like how any other, you know, straight, you know, straight male, straight couple... It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's showing you the side that you haven't seen. Uh, just in terms of that... I, I always thought, again, it's so important to take into mind 2001 that like I, I, I have a hard time if someone to tell me that this wasn't groundbreaking for 2001. Because, Ken, help me out here. I discussed this in the prior episode. What show 
is is there a such an uh, I don't know I don't know if I'm using the right word where aggressively or bluntly gay a, a character like David yeah. is do you have something you could you could you know throw out there that I I fail to see I do uh, okay <laughs> so it, yeah it is queer as folk so while six okay. is going down on HBO queer as folk is happening at, at, on Showtime and queer as folk debuted really just a few months before six feet under did. Um, okay. Now, the difference between those and Queer as Folk, I, I mean, I know exactly where I was when Queer as Folk premiered because I was living in New York City and the gay community there was like, holy cow, I cannot believe, uh, I'll, I'll probably turn your word blunt into explicit. Uh, there you go. There you go. That, that it is so explicit. But Queer as Folk was very much marketed to the LGBT community. Six mm-hmm. under that was a, a community that started building as the show. Like that's not what HBO was necessarily going for. Uh, right. So it's a really interesting contrast. I, I think that David is a. I think his portrayal is very explicit. It's nothing compared to Queerest Folk, but they are two completely different audiences. So this was much more mass uh, mass consumption. But again, it was something that probably only could have happened on HBO or Showtime. That's for sure. That's for sure. That definitely only on a uh, a paid network of sorts. Uh, so, Ken, to get into the episode, this episode aired on August nineteenth, two thousand one, and you know, a funny little tidbit I, I researched just before we started is that this episode was written by Kate Robin, and this was the first episode, and she joined you know the, the cast and crew later to to write other episodes, but she's the first female writer for the series. And, you know, you figured this episode uh, to be so the mindset of a gay male, you know, it turns out it's a female who actually wrote it. So I thought that was a little uh, interesting tidbit. Our death capsule starts out with two young men, uh, gay men, and it looks like they're around 23 years old at an ATM, you know, just being a young, affectionate couple. When two guys roll up, you know, they start sort of antagonizing the gay couple, calling them names. Uh, a fight breaks out and they start to run away. Uh, it seems like one of them got away and the other one who starts running eventually ends up dying, which is our uh, character for the episode, Marcus Foster. You know, there's something, he gets beaten to death and there's something so cold and cruel uh, of the item or the weapon they use, which is a pipe, just the sound of the pipe and whatnot. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> watching a show like this, this scene, this, this, you know, open death capsule, it like hurt my heart <laughs> and my eyes just watching or just how, you know, grotesque and whatnot it is. Um, what, how did you receive this opening scene of, you know, our death capsule? Yeah. You know that my heart was hurt. Actually, I'm going to direct your attention to before that even happened when, when, the, okay. when the two men rolled up in the car, uh, Marcus's partner, who I don't know that we gave him a name on the show, but right. He does what so many of us do, and and you know increasingly we're wrong, which is great, but we weren't so much in 2001, uh, where we exchange that look. We do an instant assessment of, you know what? There's danger on the way here. Mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. there are people rolling up, and whatever's going to happen is not going to be good. And, and if you go back, and, and I encourage everybody to go back and look at this episode before the horrific beating even happens, there's a look that happens there's that instant assessment of you know what this is i know right this second i feel unsafe 
So significant that they had public displays of affection, which, by the way, was them, what was it, hugging? You know, one was hugging the other one at they, as they were at the ATM machine. But yeah. then that danger comes in and you have that moment of, oh, okay, this I instantly know is not a safe situation. And so, so we, need to, we need to get out of this. And then mm-hmm. even before Marcus is beaten to death, his partner, the, the heartbreaking thing was him screaming to Marcus, run. And desperation in, in just yelling and exhorting him to just get, you need to get away from here. We know this is going to be a bad situation. But then, yes, I am totally there with you. Uh, it's devastating. It's, it's a devastating scenario. And, and do we go into their heads and figure out what do you hope to be accomplishing here? And what are you trying to work through? You know, like, I would love to just focus on the LGBT characters here, but at the same time, they didn't kill themselves in this. There were two individuals who caused this death to happen, who murdered him, and what the heck was going on in their heads that they felt that this was the response that they needed to have based on their discomfort of two men hugging. It's just, it is, it's heartbreaking. And, 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 you know, to that, I know actors are, this is redundant, actors are actors, and, you know, they have to do they're portraying someone and you know, other uh, in other forms of media, I know <laughs> I don't like making up a scale, but other actors have done worse in acting. But, you know, to have to, to call them the names they call them and then just that the, the final how the scene kind of ends out is he, he stomps on his head. It's I guess it's a testament to being an actor or actress because I know I know you're acting, you know, I'm setting this up with I know you're acting, but you still have to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that, that's, that, you know what I'm trying to say? Like it's, that's, that must be really difficult to do as an actor, you know? Yeah. You know, how bad is it that I'm a little desensitized to some of those words that I don't even remember. I mean, I can just assume the words that were yelled out. I obviously, mm-hmm. and, and I, I told you this off the air outside your listeners, I, I watched the episode really just like an hour and a half ago. So it, it wasn't that mm-hmm. long ago that I watched this and I remember it pretty vividly. Uh, I don't even remember the words. I just, yeah, the, the kick to the head was was pretty bad. And I would be remiss if I didn't highlight, this is the second time I'm going to say his name in, in a really short amount of time, the actor who, the, the character who was murdered, Marcus, bears quite a resemblance to Matthew Shepard. Uh, it's this uh, gay, I, white, blonde male. I, you know, when I, when I thought about the episode... I was like, oh, this is obviously a, a nod to Matthew Shepard, and I failed big time in not following up on just trying to see the similarities, but just, I have I have a, I know how big of a story that was, and that was what you said, 1998? It was 1998, and I'll, I'll always know that uh, right, Matthew right. and I were the, were the same age, um, and which actually puts Marcus and I at the same age at the same time, uh, so that, that, it's a lot, you know, you see those similarities, um, and that was a big piece for me, and I think it was a, a big piece for all of us in our mid 30s on up who for whom Matthew Shepard was us and then for mm-hmm. whom Judy Shepard his mother really became our mother mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, so we would both be in agreement that this is an obvious nod to Matthew Shepard right I like there's so. no way I, I yeah. really think so um I, I will just say in resemblance I, I think the there's a short short that people can watch I, I think it's still on Netflix called Matthew Shepard was a friend of mine or is a friend of mine uh, mm-hmm. I watched it recently on, on Netflix, and I think the similarities end with, as we'll talk about, you know, Marcos is, Marcus was really 
quite self-loathing. Um, and I don't know that that necessarily was true for, for Matthew Shepard, but certainly in physicality, there was a lot of similarity. Yeah. Just the image. Just as soon as yeah. you see it, you're, they're trying to bring that back or whatnot. Our episode starts out with Rico bringing his newborn baby, Augusto, to the funeral home. And, you know, they're all sharing in the happiness that a baby brings. Uh, there was a funny moment, and this episode is quote-unquote gay heavy. But uh, funny when Rico says, you know, he speaks over to Ruth of, when are you giving Ruth grandchildren? To which David has an awkward moment of sorts. And, you know, Ruth chimes in with a look because, you know, sort of going back to the prior episode... They're 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 getting to the point of discussing David coming out, or at least be comfortable talking about it. Here in this scene, I don't know, Ken, if you were a fan of Dexter, but just the way Michael C. Hall kind of just playing the room as, you know, he's asked this obviously awkward question. Um, you know, I, to me you could see the kind of groundwork for Dexter, just of how stoic he is and whatnot, the way he reads the situation. did you take anything away from that? Or were you a fan of Dexter rather? I, I was not a fan of Dexter. Okay. Pops okay. a little too bloody for me. Um, but I will <laughs> say that Michael C. Hall is just one of those actors who I, I actually think does so much without doing a ton. Uh, I love that he can be so understated. So in that particular scene, especially because we're all in the know about what's going on with him, you can see his struggle even as he's standing there pretty still. You know, he's yeah. not gesturing in any way, but you can see a lot going on with him. So I, I thought he did really well in that scene. And just, yeah, just the way he's able to just play off just basically his face, because he does have a few lines, but just the way he could play off everything just, to, you know, on his face alone. Uh, our next scene, Gabe comes back to school after his failed attempt at suicide. And, you know, he's sort of self-conscious about it of who knows, who doesn't know. And Claire, you know, just being ever so supportive, you know, just sort of tells him, never mind. Claire says something the, the way I try to live my life most of the time. And it's, you know, who cares what other people think so much? Like, why would you care so much about what people think about you? In the grand scheme of, you know, your day, whatnot, it doesn't matter. But that being said, that, that sort of ties into David's storyline, Assuming anyone who's listening to this podcast episode has seen the end and whatnot, and there's a moment towards the end where David and Keith are talking, and it's just like, well, why do you care so much? And yeah. you know, we'll get into it later because David's just like, it's almost at the point I agree with them. But just just here, just setting up this short scene, you know, Claire's just telling him, why do you care so much? And we'll see that that carries further into you know David's storyline. Brenda confronts Billy about the pictures that he took in Vegas after <laughs> creeping into their hotel room. And you know, Brenda is at her breaking point with Billy. You know, she asked for his key back from Billy and you know, something I wanted to get into here was uh Jeremy Sis Jeremy Sisto, the actor who plays Billy. Uh how do you think he portrays being quote unquote crazy or bipolar rather? Yeah, that's that's a rough one, right? And so it, yeah. prior to my being a professor, uh, I actually was a dean of students at small liberal arts colleges in the Northeast for about 10 years. Uh, mm -hmm. So I've worked a lot with mental health issues, and in particular with mental health issues of people who are under 30. And so I, I thought that he did really well, you know, the manic thing. I think in particular in those scenes with, with he and Brenda, there's just so much bargaining, right? And, and we see that a lot, where there might be mm -hmm. some recognition that behavior was important. But what, what Brenda is asking for is for him to see, she's asking for two things. She wants her key back. She wants, you know, to reestablish some boundaries, but she also wants him to be on his meds. Uh, and 
Billy in in this scene really feels like, all right, if I'm agreeing to be on my meds, then we can bargain here and we can do some negotiations. <laughs> uh, and, and that doesn't work out well. I, I just love highlighting that right after this, he went to go appear on Law and Order. So he, he made a, he made quite the career. <laughs> but yeah, right. he, he's that's he's a rough character. He, that's a rough one. Because sometimes I have to say, sometimes I buy him when he's, you know, acting out uh sometimes i'm like man that that's that must be so hard to play to act crazy but sometimes he does it so well like in this scene here it's just there's there's a quick breaking point to the point where he's crying begging you know please don't do this please you know don't kick me out or whatnot later brenda talks to nate and you know nate has great advice and it's sort of foreshadowing for what happens later in the episode that brenda needs to react now or rather, act now instead of react later. And Brenda has a tough time, obviously, committing Billy to institution. And, you know, I get that despite all all the craziness that Billy has entered into uh, Brenda's life. But a common thread I've asked on this show is, and, you know, please chime in here. What does Nate, or, or rather, why is Nate still around in in the eleven episodes so far, I have yet to see something where I see I see that connection between the two of them, and this is hugely taxing as the boyfriend. You know to deal with Brenda and Billy. D- do you see that connection there as as someone who had watched the show up to this point at least? Well, I, I think actually Ruth has quite an opinion on that in this very episode where oh, it's such a great quote. Yeah. Yep, go ahead. He very much thinks that it's it's not necessarily about their connection. It just has to do with the fact that that Brenda is so hot and cold that she's not mm-hmm. just keeping attention onto Nate. And so there is something that's very unattainable about her. Uh, but yeah, they they are really ships passing the night. I and mean, yeah, Nate has good advice for her when they're sitting down, but as Brenda, Brenda's not in a place to hear that advice at all. Brenda's opinion is, you know what, you are really not giving me what I need right now. I don't want good advice. I want support. So they, um, it's, it's not my favorite cinematic uh, television relationship, uh, but at the same time, I think that he is, he is chasing a dream a bit. He is chasing something that was so sparky at the start. Uh, and then, and then she really puts the brakes on things and, and, throws up some obstacles. And so I wonder how much it's really about her and, and how much it's about Nate just trying to win. I, I guess, and, you know, we, with that scene with Ruth later on, it, it definitely, it's just telling. It's just, yeah, it's sort of, you, uh, it's to, to dumb it down to its to its simplest form is you want what you can't have. Exactly. And Brenda's absolutely, <laughs> despite all his trying and whatnot, and, you know, Ruth just says it so perfect is, you know, the fact that she is not wanting you and not that's why you want her so much more and you know i i I get i guess it took this this long to see that but you know episodes prior just i never i never fully understood the love the the connection there between them but i guess kind of as a tv show does as it you know plots out it's just as simple as something you know nate can't have david and nate are sitting with the parents of Marcus Foster uh, arranging for his funeral. And just how I said I, I wanted a gay male on the podcast, uh, I have a fan who writes in, you know, he kind of gives me his little recap 
you know, based off my episode, uh, his name is also David. He'll be joining me next season to talk about an episode. Uh, he gave me some insight as well, just because I, I feel like I should be taking a step back, you know, just with what the episode deals with. And, you know, on, on how he viewed this, this, this scene where, you know, they're, they're arranging the funeral for Marcus. He had pointed out where this is where David Fisher, the things really start taking a turn in his mind and just how much he sees himself in the scenario. There's an obvious rift between the mom and dad and the dad here obviously places the blame for Marcus dying just for simply being gay. But even after the fact, he's still in huge denial. This, this speaks, obviously, to David's sexuality just as he's sitting there kind of taking it all in and the way just the camera goes back and forth to the parents straight to David. Uh, l- l- let me, let me, well, first, let me start here. What, what is your take on the, you know, just on this arrangements and how the parents are kind of talking about it? Yeah, I, I love that they were even talking about it. And I think that actually was one of the big struggles for David because there, there was so much speculation happening and I think it started to hit home for him that, that we're any tragedy ever to befall him uh his mom in in that situation where marcus marcus's parents were would have to do the same type of speculation because they never actually had that conversation so i got the sense that there was a little bit of a uh, the the classic trope of that marcus was close closer to his uh, mother than he was to his father but you know i think that you could easily play this scene for the stereotype and say that the father, you know, he brought it on himself or what. And, and I didn't really feel like that's what his father was saying. You know, his father okay. w- was essentially saying if he weren't, you know, if he weren't gay, uh, this wouldn't have happened to him. But that's very different than I think a lot of the stereotypes, a lot of the storylines at the time were um, because he was gay. You know, we have the dis- disapproving father uh, saying because he was gay, he deserved it in some way. So I think that there was some compassion here, and obviously in the, in the face of just ridiculous tragedy here, but there was <laughs> really was some nuance to that. That I, I think when we got to that scene, I was expecting them to say, you know, to really put blame, more blame on. I'm okay with them putting blame on the fact that he was gay. Uh, if I'm choosing between that and putting blame on their son. Right. right, um, right. I, I felt like it was a real society comment that the father was making that that being gay is just not safe. Right. And and so he is gay. This happened. Um, but it, it's not like our son deserved to die. Uh, it was more that this society sucks right now. I guess as, as it's coming out, the dad was more like it's not safe to be gay. And he didn't really mean it as much as he died because he was gay and this was sort of inevitable or maybe that's both the same comment that's a that's an interesting nuance too i'm not sure about the inevitable piece i just know that a lot of the storylines on tv at this time were you know you would have the the father being so disapproving and and really coming out and saying well you brought this on yourself um, I felt like this was maybe a little bit of a tweak on that where the father was saying because uh, because he is gay, uh, you know, maybe there this was more likely to happen, but still didn't feel like the father was saying, and, but this is his fault. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. So I, I thought there was maybe a little bit of a shift there, though not really a huge one. Interesting that the mother said, you know, I, I was instantly worried about 
AIDS first. I thought that that was going to be, you know, <laughs> AIDS was what was going to do him in. Um, mm-hmm. but, but there they were talking about mild. So, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that it could have been a little bit more stereotypical. So I thought that that Alan Ball was playing around with this a little bit more, or the, the writer was playing around with this a little bit more. Right. There's a scene here during my first watching where my jaw just absolutely dropped. Uh, Rico, well, actually, let me set it up that David is bringing in Marcus Foster to start, you know, preparing him for visitation and whatnot. And Rico is there and he's changing his newborn baby on the embalming table. Did you pick up on this at all or not really? I'm going to assume that uh, due to sterilization, that's a no-no. Is it, This is more your field than mine, but it struck me that maybe that's not the most sanitary thing. I mean, uh, how unholy, disgusting, and unsanitary that is. And, you know, you have to give the show some liberty. So, you know, you kind of have to set up scenes like this and whatnot. But, you know, what what they were going for here was a newborn baby on the table. And on the other table was Marcus Foster. But, I mean, if if I'm stepping outside of it and I'm going to chime in as a funeral director, it's not even necessarily that the table is dirty and it's not like an embalming room is so filthy that you can't possibly be in there. But to change your your newborn, let's say, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt that this baby's one month old, which he's not, but it's just so unhygienic, uh, you know... You walk around with shoes. If I could say it, you walk around outside with shoes for a reason. Um, you know that table. The table isn't disinfected per se, scrubbed every inch after every embalming. But you you know you just sort of get into your thing where you just let you know you'll spray that spray it down clean and hose it down. But if we're to assume we're we're in the show universe that there was a there was a body being embalmed there recently and. That's where you're, that's of all places in a funeral home, that's where you choose to change your baby. Um, I don't want to say Rico's a bad father, but in this instance, like, yes, bad father. I know we have to give the show some liberty, but it, when I saw it, I was like, oh, God, that is, why not eat a sandwich off there, too? You I know what I mean? Pause here, and I, I just would like to acknowledge how fun it is for me to be on a podcast right now where embalming is not a metaphor. We really are talking about embalming. <laughs> That's just really, I love it. Just well, when I saw that scene, you know, the, the, there was an episode earlier I had Natalie on as a funeral director, and, you know, she, she just commented on how Nate would be fired for some of the stuff he does. And here, I don't even understand how David's not like, you know, what are you doing? You know, I, you know, you, you walk into the prep room and you automatically put gloves on and everything. And it's just, ah, uh, it was such a, a jaw dropping scene. Bad but karma. I think it's bad karma for the baby. That too. Yeah. Just like the, 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 the respect or the dignity of it and all of it. Just, uh, you know, just a, a funny little thing. Claire, we move on to Claire and Claire's having a, her conversation with the guidance counselor. And, you know, something that's so Claire to say, if you know her character, you know, she has a comment about how the people in this high school have the mentality of a teenager. <laughs> but what's funny about that is Claire is a teenager, yeah. you know, where we're at in the show. Uh, you know, the conversation is nice and it's basically the counselor trying to cut through, you know, Claire's front that she puts up. Um, you have anything here on, on Claire, at least where she is at this part in the episode? Well, I mean, I think there's the part where uh, she's quite the hypocrite, as she is, by the way, throughout the series. Maybe, perhaps, not <laughs> my favorite character on there, but 
you know, she's yelling at her, her boyfriend, what do you care what they think? But then she very intentionally omits their relationship at all when she's speaking to the guidance counselor because she does care what people think. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that motivates her to no end. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, Claire. Claire and her disaffected youth. <laughs> and, you know, this is why I need I have other guests on because I didn't even make that connection of her being, why do you care what everyone else thinks? And then she can't even admit her relationship to what's supposed to be a closed room, you know, no secrets allowed. She can't even admit about um, Gabe. So yeah, that's, that's why you always, (laughs) that's why you should always talk to people. Um, Ken, I want your input here specifically. The, the officer an an officer comes over to Keith and tells him he wants to work security for the foster funeral. Um, You know, trying to dissect it, I, I couldn't tell, well, let me say this, whether Keith is gay or not doesn't change anything regarding the security for the funeral. So when the officer comes over, was this him appointing a gay person so as to feel more comfortable or, you know, to, to not put any stress on any of the other officers or was it you're gay so you work the gay funeral? How did you take that? If you remember the scene. Oh, Victor. Adorable, adorable Victor. Yeah, no, this is a problematic scene, right? So like this is it's problematic, but it's it's so so classic and and I have to tell you, I think of the whole episode, this was a scene where I was like, Yep, that would be my life. Um I, I think a big piece of it is the PR piece. Like we need to be able to say because they it will ruin the ending a little bit, you know, there were press at the funeral. Uh, yeah. There were there were TV reporters there, and they knew this was highly covered. It was in all the newspapers. This hate crime, uh, everybody was talking about it. Everybody had heard about it, and so for the police department, they wanted to be able to put a face forward to say, "Hey, look how sensitive we are, right? Like we have a gay police yeah. officer who's out, and people know that he's gay, so we want to put him front and center." And I got to tell you, that's like. Uh, it <laughs> it destroys me. I uh, I get that a lot. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a professor of education. I, I most of the courses I teach are about race, but it never fails that I will have a professor reach out at least once a semester, usually a lot more than that, and say, "Hey, can you come and speak to my class?" Uh, yeah, sure, I can talk to your class. What are we talking about? You know, in a diversity class, and I'm habitually asked to be the gay person coming in to give the gay lecture. Which I'm fine to do many times uh, just because I get nervous of what it's going to be if somebody else does it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if, if they have someone who's not well versed in, in queer theory and LGBT safety and, and all that fun stuff in schools. Uh, but at the same time, you're asking me to come speak to a diversity course. My academic area of interest is race. And yet the only thing you're asking me to do is essentially be uh, is, is to be gay. Uh, one of the professors who I enjoy immensely now, I used to be very insulted when she would ask me to do it, but now I don't care as much because every time I appear in her class, basically as the gay guy, uh, she gets me a little prize and I enjoy all the prizes, so I'll do it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, I, I had a t-shirt last semester that said fabulous. I'm like, all right, you know what? I have a <laughs> if you want me to come in and be the gay guy, uh, that's fine. I have no problem doing that. But yeah, that that's we're still at that point. Or you know, professors who and and my colleagues across the country experience this in any number of contexts, not just in education, where someone will see a gay article, uh, and it will happen on social media as well, right? Like someone mm-hmm. sees a gay article and they'll share it with me, 
and say, look, <laughs> first of all, yes, I did see that. Um, and, and second, share it with everybody else. My, my favorite was at the end of last semester, someone shared with me uh, an article in the Huffington Post, a piece in the Huffington Post. And she said, oh, my gosh, did you see this post? Yeah, I wrote it. So you and I really did because I, I have a column in the Huffington Post. I write for the for the queer voices section. So first of all, you're sharing with me a piece that I wrote. Second of all, <laughs> with other people. I got it. <laughs> you know, if you I, this idea of we're trying to be an ally, right? Which I love that. I want people to be allies. I'm all for people being allies. But allyship is not just telling the gay person, hey, I'm you know, I'm on the inside track, I'm good. Great. I also need you to take these conversations and have them with other people in your life because otherwise it really is just me having those conversations. So right. I love the motivations here and I think that it came from a good place in this episode of, of the police chief or the police sergeant saying, you know, like we want to put our best foot forward because uh, he could have said we want you nowhere near this. Right. True. True. And at the same time, it would have been great if we'd said, by the way, we have this incredible safe zone training as part of our police force, and we're specially trained uh, in working with LGBT populations. And that's something that most police forces still are not trained on 16 mm-hmm. years later. So, uh, yeah, it's I saw that one. I'm like, yep, that that one resonates for me. <laughs> Well then, Ken, l- 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 let me ask you a question then, because just while you were saying it, uh, and, and you know, it, it was a fear of mine when I knew this episode. It was a fear of mine going out and trying to grab a gay person to come on, and just as we sort of spoke about everything, you know, I, was, I, I kept asking you, "Are you comfortable talking?" Essentially, I'm doing what your professor did. No, where? Well, 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 well when they had you come in and speak. Um, cause I essentially was saying to you, you, you know, you're, you're a gay male. Will you come on my podcast? Is that, is that sort of the vibe? And I'm okay with it because I, I was doing this episode, you know, for it and whatnot. Uh, is that the vibe I got, came off to you when I asked you to come no, on? I, this is, this is really self, uh, self important to the podcast. So I, yes. now I'm just, you know, curious or whatnot. I will pick you up off the ground, Victor. It's okay. You know, I, <laughs> you are saying to me, right? Like, I think the difference is, is if you are saying, look, um, I, can you just do this episode, right? And you take a step back and you're not engaged in the material, but you're engaged in this conversation. You're openly struggling. You're openly contributing. And that's a different thing to me. Okay, to I understand. All the weight on me. You know, like I, I'm not I'm not here to educate you, Victor, and, and I don't feel like you're putting me in that position. And by the way, okay, uh-huh. so many parallels when we're talking about race and we're talking about sexual orientation. Like it's never the job of the minority to educate the majority we know that (laughs) but at the same time you know i i can easily say no uh and hopefully someone else will will pick that up Mm -hmm. uh it so yeah i i i appreciate how much you are flailing yourself on this one but no you're you're Okay, no, just while you were talking, and as he was going on, it's like, oh my god, is he, like, <laughs> indirectly saying what I did? But no, like, the point was to have on and have conversation. It wasn't just, can be gay, I'll be over here, let me know. Yeah, so no, I don't need you here, I can be gay with that. <laughs> uh, so, as we see in the show, and it's sort of a callback where 
finally we have the deceased starts talking to our one of our main characters in their own psyche form. We have Marcus, you know, coming to life in the form of David's psyche. And, you know, kind of their conversation, you could just see how 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 wrong David thinks of you know what being gay is. You know, the the idea that David have David has of just faking it and living a life of lies. Uh, it, it, you know, there's a moment where Marcus calls David Jim and, you know, I sort of took it as, you know, he's tickling his, this is, uh, you get confusing cause we're talking second and third persons. David's kind of tickling his own psyche about what's right or wrong about being gay. Um, you know, what the show does great is, you know, just exactly what they did. The, the dead person will kind of be talking to them, but it's themselves talking to them. Uh, and this this storyline obviously plays out much bigger as the episode goes on of just how, correct me if I'm wrong here, how much David has internalized himself, internalized hate for himself being gay. God, yeah. Would, oh, yeah. would that be right to say? He is just a tortured, tortured soul. Uh, and and there certainly is a faith aspect to that. And I think the faith aspect comes up more and more as the episode goes on. And I know certainly as the seasons go on, uh, he really is trying to reconcile what he sees as being wrong, right? Like mm-hmm. he wants to be saved. And, and Marcus keeps saying over and over, or at least, and again, I think this is a really important piece, right? Like it's not just a device. This isn't a supernatural show. So this isn't Marcus, right? This is... David's internalizing what he thinks Marcus thought about himself. And that's a really important piece because in no way do I think that Marcus would have voiced this, right? Like he seemed really proud. In fact, he he seemed much more comfortable uh, being gay than even his partner at the beginning of the episode in in displays of affection. So this is, this is David's thoughts in this. And, and what keeps coming up is Marcus. And again, David's manifestation of his own, tortured homosexuality and and where he is with being gay of saying Mm -hmm. i'm going to hell right and so that's that's david's thinking faith was a big part of my background and because of my sexual orientation i'm going to be going to hell and that's it hurts that's another one that that just gets you right in the heart yeah it's like god you you poor (laughs) you poor soul to think that what 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 you're again i know i'm talking about a character but i would not be remiss to say i'm uh, I'm sure people have gone through this where they just think it's so oh, wrong. Minute. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, that uh, happens all the time. I mean, that happens all the time. I have, uh, hopefully he's okay with me talking about it, but you know, this was my partner and, and any number of other people who uh, have had really strong relationships with faith. You know, uh, a big issue that I, I try to talk about a lot on my podcast, um, because I, I think there's a big part of the LGBT community that feels like after we, after the Supreme Court made marriage equality the law of the land, that we're good and everything's great. Well, no, one of the biggest issues out there that still needs to be talked about tons and tons is reparative therapy, conversion therapy. And with yeah. conversion therapy, which is almost exclusively faith-based at this point. So it's a practice <laughs> by which... Uh, faith leaders or, and it doesn't make for good uh, radio, but air quotes, psychologists or counselors or therapists (laughs) um, are trying to change the sexual orientation or gender identity of their patients. Well, the research over and over, the American Medical Association has said, not only does that not work, reparative therapy does not change anyone's sexual orientation. There is no choice involved here, right? Not only does it not work, but it does harm. Well, 
I mean, it increases depression, it increases suicidality. Well, you would think with that, especially as we're talking about minors and this thing that's connected to faith, that uh, there would be more laws against it. There are only five states in the country that prohibit conversion therapy, that ban conversion therapy on minors. And the big argument there, tying it back to this episode, is because it is so tied to faith. So this is this is not a 2001 and before thing. This is absolutely a current thing. Still Where current. Therapy is the law, is by and large the law of the land. And it's because, you know, parents or people who aren't minors, you know, gay people who uh, are, are 16 and older are subjecting themselves to it. You know, mm-hmm. so my partner's part of a, a group called the Gay Christian Network. And so many adults in the Gay Christian Network subject themselves to conversion therapy because their faith or their family or society has sent them the message that who they are is not right and that they're going to hell. So yeah, no, this is, this is not a rare thing. This is pretty darn common and legal. (laughs) You know, Ken, I said in the beginning of the podcast about how smart you were and then, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm trying, like you you say it so eloquently and you, you, you propose it so well. I'm just like, yes, (laughs) I, I, I I understand what you're saying. Another one. Yeah, <laughs> it's just yes. Uh, um, I, I, you know what? I did not know about that. Uh, I didn't know that was such a big thing. And it's funny because I certainly knew when gay marriage was legal. I certainly yeah. knew about that. But that's a more pressing issue issue to me because there's. I, I'm speaking strictly strictly from the minor standpoint, just because you know you're, you're being you're being shaped at such a, a young age and. Yeah, that's heartbreaking that I didn't know that, and that's that's something I wish I would. There is more awareness, or there's growing more awareness for that. Yeah, I'm hoping. Well, not really. I mean, there there are certainly some groups trying. Can I blow your mind on one more? This is another. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, this is now. I'm having a blast. Uh, do, have you ever donated blood? I have. How old were you when you first donated blood? Wow, 20, 20 years old. Oh, really? See, so, the, and that's great, and I support your decision to do uh-huh. that. Um, but many, many high school students are, are give blood. You know, there's a big blood drive in high school, so 16, 17, 18 year olds. Well, mm-hmm. the one of the first questions that you are asked uh, when you are trying to donate blood is whether or not you've had sex. If you're if you're a man, whether or not you've had sex with another man. So, if you have indeed had sex with another man at any point in your life, you are banned from giving blood. Still it's, today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just conversion therapy that affects minors and this internalized. Gay people are told from the earliest age, and we're not even talking about other media and all the messages that come from all over the place. We're even told to hate ourselves on a cellular level. We are told that our blood is inherently disease. Um, and so up until last year, there was a lifetime ban uh, on gay men giving blood. The FDA, which is actually the organization, some people think it's the CDC or the Red Cross, it's the FDA that that oversees all blood drives, Uh, they have changed the rules so that if um, you would like to give blood and you're gay, you just have to promise that you haven't had sex in a year. (laughs) 
And so if you've been celibate for a year, they will allow you to give blood. And again, I raise this not just to do some gay awareness, which I think is a great thing, though, I, I would because that's one of those things that kills me where I have that blood that would save everybody and I can't because I'm, I'm barred from giving blood. The, the, it's, it's a little unrealistic that anyone might be having an exciting weekend and stop themselves from having sex because they will say, you know what, I can't because I would like to give blood in a year, right? Like it's a little <laughs> unrealistic. But I, I bring this up that these are the different messages that, that gay kids get. So from an, from an age when you even want to give blood, this life-saving thing, they're told, no, even on a chemical level, you are diseased, you are unholy, you are going to hell. So this is, this is very much still a real thing. I, that's crazy. That's crazy. Uh, I, on one hand, it's crazy because I, 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 I feel like that's something I should have known. But I mean, screwing that for a second, that's crazy that it exists in 2017. I totally um, hijacked your podcast. I apologize. I, I, you completely hijacked it. But <laughs> to me, at this point, it's informative to me. And I know we're so far off the episode. But, uh, uh, you know, yes. Um, all right, let's try to get back into it. But that is that is that is crazy to hear that in 2017. Nate gets a, a new call at the funeral home, and it's a house call. When I say it's a house call, meaning it's where you remove the deceased from the house. I've talked on previous episodes about how you would usually go to a house call with two guys, or two people, rather, to remove a deceased. And at the very least, you show up in a suit out of respect. But Nate being Nate, he's just showing up with you know jeans and a flannel and from the moment nate shows up it's pretty creepy uh he's in a warehouse of sorts and you know there's no family outside waiting obviously it's a setup but i'm just trying to put you in the minds the the mindset of what a funeral director would be doing if they showed up for this and you know I, I encourage funeral directors here to share their stories with me of you know being called to a house to remove a deceased but I've rarely been put in this position where I've, you know, shown up and you just have that feeling of something doesn't quite feel right. Uh, never like this, you know, um, Nate, you know, Nate just walks in with the stretcher and the first thing I was like, well, that's trespassing because <laughs> no one, no one let you into their residence, you know, and we see Nate take the elevator up and you know, we kind of get the hint of what's going on. There's a picture of Claire and, you know, we see what's coming. Recalling what I said earlier, and Ken, um, I'm excluding you here, but this is a very, there's a very Dexter-esque moment oh. where just kind of how they're setting up all the pictures and whatnot. But, you know, something quick I wanted to mention, and I talked about it in episode 10 with New Person. How would Billy taking that picture of Nate peeing on the wall uh, Ken, I don't know if you remember, there's a picture of Nate peeing on the wall and to to Billy to have gotten so close to it, me and my guests were just sort of like, well, how did Nate not know about that? You know, that same, that same my friend David wrote in that there's lens and whatnot to get that. I don't know how informed you are on photography, but uh, a certain lens could have gotten that. So I'm just kind of writing a wrong from a previous episode. So Nate walks into this room and, you know, there's some you know, creepy, creepy old music playing with a line of candles and mannequins everywhere to really make it creepy. And, you know, for a quick moment, we see on the bed what we presume is a dead body with blood and all the captions on the photos in the bed, whatnot, just adding to the creepiness. And Nate lifts up the covers and, 
good old Billy jumps out. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I guess it doesn't have to be said any further that Billy, you know, definitely should be committed. But you know what? I like their their conversation where you know uh, Nate gets that moment where he realizes he needs to kind of outsmart Billy, and you know he just plays right into Nate's hand of well Billy does rather plays into Nate's hand of you know that Brenda also rejected Nate, and that's how we got off. What did you think of this? You know, uh, uh, how do I say this? Uh, it was a horror movie scene up until, you know, we see Billy jump out. <laughs> how did you take that? Oh, honestly, I stopped listening after you said good old Billy because I'm still stuck on that. <laughs> we retire calling him good old Billy at any point. Yeah, no, this is a, a creeptastic scene. And mm-hmm. um, I, I wanted Nate to just get out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Ugh, good old Billy, you know? <laughs> As we move away from the scene, just another thing I wanted to add as a funeral director that Nate just leaves his stretcher there, and those things aren't cheap. So again, I know I'm nitpicking and whatnot, but that was just one thing. It's like, no, 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 no. Go back and take your stretcher. Like I'm learning a lot, too. This is good for me as well. <laughs> Looking for new careers. <laughs> it's something, right? Uh, Ruth is trying to talk to Robbie about how he came out to his parents, and... You know, something that's so great about this Robbie character and why I'm going to stress talking about Robbie because he does become a bigger character in later episodes. But I love how uh, combative he is, if I could say that, or yeah. just quick-witted, I guess, right? Well, um, is, if I can just say, I, I think one yeah. of the reasons that, that, that Robbie is a little bit different is because there's this just assumption that if you say to a gay person, hey, tell me your story, that, that they should tell you. Right. And Robbie, <laughs> Robbie actually says, no, that's that's none of your business. Uh, and so I, mm-hmm. I love that piece of it, you know, just because you want to hear my story doesn't mean that you are entitled to it. And particularly, particularly if it involves some pain, you know, it's these are very personal stories for a lot of folks. Yeah. Right before that, though, where Ruth is Ruth asked him about coming out, you know, can you tell me your story about coming out? why this a Robbie character is so good is like, well, how dare you make that an assumption I'm gay? Like, what's wrong with you? And Ruth is like, oh my God, I'm sorry. He's like, no, what's wrong with you? Of course I'm gay. <laughs> I just loved how Robbie just kind of played with an obviously, you know, tender and sensitive Ruth. Um, and just kind of going with what you're saying and like, I guess, I guess maybe if we were in a more personal environment or not a work environment, I could maybe reason, but... You know, Robbie's right. Like this is work, and you develop friendship at the workplace, but not not where you could just come out and ask this. Where you know, assuming where they are in their friendship. Um, later on, Ruth tries to open up to Robbie by trying to share what she calls <laughs> the most horrible moment from my intimate past. And again, just why this Robbie character is so great is because at first he wants nothing to do with it. And, you know, Ruth goes on and, you know, she begins with, I, I was married for 30 years. I never slept with anyone else until I started dating my hairdresser. And, you know, Robbie just slams down his new, newspaper, uncrosses his legs, and he is now all ears and ready to hear Ruth. He uh, is to win it at that point. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, just, it, you know, it, what, what Six Feet Under the Soul is great is they're taking this, this, this moment of just walking up to someone, not just someone, but, you know, can you tell me your experience about being gay? And it's, there's so much comedy in it, you know, and, you know, Ruth, you know, once Robbie saddles up and, you know, all ears, Ruth, you know, she's really giving, you know, her, her deep intimate moment here. And, 
you know, she's 60 something and talking about a moment where she had to please herself. She's getting real intimate for the workplace. Robbie mentions how, you know, how he never came out to his parents and just what a great line was is, you know, well, why? And Robbie's like, well, I, you know, man, I'm going to mess up the quote here. Children know what they're supposed to be to their parents. And, you know, we see later that's the struggle that David faces with Ruth. Um, it, what, how did you, how did you take this, this story with Robbie? And, you know, that, that quote really hit me that children know what they, you know, know what they're supposed to be to their parents. How did you take away from Robbie's, Robbie's little moment with Ruth? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that's a pretty classic trope of, of just expectations, right? Like that, that are, are we going to be blindsided when we come out? Um, mm -hmm. By the way, I should probably pause here and, and say, you know, because I, obviously I knew we would talk about coming out as well. It's mm -hmm. always a great opportunity to remind anybody out there listening that coming out is not a moment in time, right? Like coming out is not this thing that you do and you do it and then you're out. It, it doesn't work like that. Uh, coming out is a continuous process. Uh, you are you are coming out to yourself. You are coming out in different contexts, whether it be at work or with your family. It's like, all right, well, you just told your sister, but now you got to tell your mom, and now maybe your mom, in my situation, said you got to go tell your grandmother. Uh, or you're just in different scenarios where there are assumptions made about you. You know, when I'm when I'm out with my partner and and uh, the waitress says, you know, will your wives be joining you or something like that. It's a continuous, it's a continuous process. Um, certainly, mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. the big coming out process moment of time that, that often gets covered in popular media is when you do come out to your parents. Uh, and if, if that is something that indeed happens uh, for individuals. I actually thought Rob, what Robbie was going to say is, you know, I didn't get a chance to because my parents died. That's uh, where I thought he was going, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think in this one, yeah, I, I think you have a sense of, well, this is not all the different messages that my parents have sent me growing up of what it is to be a man, right? Like what it is to be a man or what it is to be a woman. And it's not just how you dress and how you act, but it's also who you love. And and there, there, there will be increasingly parents role modeling, you know, as, as there are more and more gay parents. Uh, role modeling that love can can look differently than it used to, uh, but for so many people in in particular, in particularly in Robbie's generation, that's just not the role modeling they saw. And so I think he felt pretty convinced, and he was probably pretty spot on that 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 wasn't a conversation that would have been received well by his parents. Ken, you 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 mentioned about being a man, and I'm gonna hold that comment because I want to set the scene up because that's actually something I wanted to talk about. Um, to set it up, you know, David takes a stroll around town and he pass he passes by the Marcus Foster Memorial. Maybe this is just me. I kind of connect whatever I see on TV. Just as I watch any form of media, I you know somewhat quickly relate it to real life. But I don't know when I saw that, and it was a you know small small memorial. I got sort of I don't know. You know what flashed in my head was the the Orlando Pulse nightclub and that right. memorial. I guess that was just the most recent, you yeah. know. But it just flashed really quick and. I don't know if anyone else had thought that. Well, and back to that time too. I mean, they made that before 9/11, but it aired only a few weeks before 9/11. Yeah, and you know what's funny about that? Every time I start the episode, I just just so everyone understands what context we're in. You know, we're in August 19th, and every as as I've been doing each episode, I'm like, oh man, August 19th. This was two weeks before 9/11. Yeah. We don't, you know, we don't see what happens because next episode, uh, I guess it's like what August 26th. So just kind of it jumps off until next year but yeah it's that's in my mind every time I say the date and again here David is he's doing this thing again where 
And Marcus is talking to him through his, you know, manifestation of David. And David, the words he says to himself that, you know, he's an abomination because he's gay. And there's a part, well, first let me say, no, you know what? I'm going to scale that back. There's a part where Marcus says that you should have let me stay the way I am. And he means that he's all bruised and whatnot. Um, if I could say this without it being misunderstood, there's sort there's sort of a point that Marcus has. And I don't think it was the intention of you meant, but it was like if people saw how brutal that became, Marcus is saying you should leave me the way I am because I'm gay and this is how... You know, this is what I really look like. But there's sort of a point, too, of just being like, look at how gruesome a hate crime like that could be. Do you get what I'm saying, Ken, or am I not explaining myself? I do. Um, I didn't necessarily go there, you know, like I, I but I, I, I hear that. Um, and, and I think. No, no yeah, I, I took I took it upon myself to say, yeah, he's got a he's got a point in something that he wasn't meant to say. in just that, like, yeah, look how look how disgusting, you know, if you want to say how disgusting being gay is. Well, look how disgusting what you could do is. But obviously he meant it of like, you know, sort of the self hate that David has. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want my my bruised outside, you know, my bruised and bloody and exactly to resemble what's going on on the inside. Absolutely. And and, you know, to go to go to the man thing that I was I was kind of holding to set up after David's going just, you know, through all the self hate with him. The next scene, well, the next moment where Rico shows up, it just sort of validates everything that David's kind of holding in because Rico comes in and he just bashes. There's, you know, a bunch of gay people outside and Rico's just kind of, obviously he doesn't know at this point that David's gay and he's just sort of bashing him. Um, You know, there's a point where he said men, Rico says to David, men don't do that. And David just snaps back, I am a man. That's what I wanted to talk about was just like the idea that because you like, and let's not, let's not make this exclusive to men but you know a man is not a man because he likes other men or a woman's not a woman because she likes other women uh i always 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 sort of fascinated by the quip of you're less of a man because you like other men right you know well so we got we can't have this is going to bring in my academic stuff but we can't have this conversation about rico without talking about communities of color right like this is Mm -hmm. this is intricately tied in with race and and could this conversation happen with two white characters absolutely but Mm -hmm. we also know that once we throw in intersectionality and, and talk about that that intersection of uh, of race and sexual orientation, it really does get a lot more complicated because the messages can be even more ingrained about what it is to be a man and, and how uh, how we behave in society and, and how masculinity is performed, you know, how it's effectively performed. So that's a big piece of this too, uh, of of Rico's cultural background as well. Yeah, and, and you know he says that because he he is talking about a lot of his own culture when he's when he's bringing up you know what men do and whatnot. Um, the moment in between where David sort of snaps and you know he just he you know he snaps to Rico. There's like four seconds before David finally decides to just be like, you know what, Rico, I'm a homo. There's that 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 moment in between there, like the, the the silence is so deafening, to the point that he finally just you know erupts. Rico, when Rico storms out and whatnot, and again just to tail it back to 2001, I imagine a large amount of people kind of agreed with Rico of how he was. You know, you don't talk about that. Don't bring that around here. 
I have to imagine that there was a large portion that agreed with Rico there as he kind of yeah, just storms off. Yeah, I thought the, David's response was exactly what the we embalming room said. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that David's response was exactly what we wanted it to be. Of well, what a ridiculous double standard! You were just here inappropriately changing your baby on the on the table, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. Your your life is here. You are able to be fully present. Why is it the double standard that I cannot? I, David, uh-huh, cannot uh-huh. be fully present. That's that's true hypocrisy there as well. Mm-hmm. We touched on it earlier, but I, I want to just get it out there myself as someone who has, who dates, dated, has had girlfriends and, you know, I'm, I'm not married, but when Nate is complaining to Ruth about how he finally wants to settle down with a girl and, you know, that girl makes it impossible for him to settle down with, Ruth just kind of sends like a truth missile, you know, where she's like, do you, th- you know, we talked about it earlier, but she's like, you know, you think that's by coincidence? Uh, if she made it easier, you wouldn't be so eager. I think if there's anyone who has dated past a certain age, you know how, <laughs> you know how close this hits the home to yourself, you know, and it's just like we were talking earlier, you want what you can't have sort of deal. And I think just that's so perfect for Nate and Ruth's character to kind of have that little battle, you know? Absolutely. Uh, Ruth creeping ever closer towards asking David, finally ask Nate if David's gay. And, you know, of course, Nate being the ever-loving brother, it's sort of like, yeah, that's not a question you should be asking me. Ruth, you know, visibly frustrated by all this sort of flips the lid. And, you know, it's great how (laughs) she says that David can't hold this secret of being gay and it's how tense it's making David and how it's not good for him. And Ruth is right on some level, but... You know, if you look at Ruth in this scene and how tension filled she is about how, you know, she she can't get the answer to if David's gay or not, but she's sort of like projecting of how much this is affecting David. But you see her; she's just kind of off the rails. <laughs> I thought that was a nice um, what's the word there? Irony. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, we move on to the end of Billy's downfall, and you know something it's only really been done with the the Billy storyline is there's sort of like horror music cues where Brenda being in bed and you know we just show up where Billy has cut off his own lower back his tattoo rather uh when I first seen it I thought it was a dream just because the way Brenda's in white you know watching the television you know again just going back to the acting at least for Jeremy Sisto he's a big dude and in a more serious situation of manhandled for lack of a better term brenda and that's just a scary scenario where it gets to that point and that's unfortunately the pushing pushing over the edge part for them i don't know ken you have anything there with just how oh i'm just thinking of that lower back tattoo being cut out by billy himself um how did you play that that final that being the last straw for billy yeah no it's that's that's our good old billy (laughs) <laughs> i think it's time i dropped the good old huh <laughs> what i'm sure that's what i wasn't saying at all yes <laughs> oh boy um we are finally at marcus foster's funeral and you know uh, this this obviously this death capsule whatnot up to this point in the season it's it's the saddest one we have all the hate groups here with their signs and you know just how I don't know how ridiculously ridiculous it is, those signs. And, you know, you need to protest the kid's funeral. 
uh, I always, my standpoint in those sort of things was, do you think that says more about the person you're protesting or does that say <laughs> about you? I wouldn't be so adamant about this, but this happens in real life and I've seen it. Um, you know, if you're a fan of Six Feet Under, you know that this is the first and last time you've seen David getting this out of control. Uh, you know, he just sort of walks up to one of these guys and punches them right in the mouth, screaming at them and letting loose of all this tension that sort of Ruth was talking about. Um, you know, here, he isn't David who's, he, when he's here at the funeral, David is not David, the person who struggled with sexuality. He's here as David Fisher, the funeral director. So that takes a lot out of him at that moment to react that way. To a funeral director to lash out like that, being a you know being the the head of the you know the ceremonies and whatnot, you know that's a big risk that he takes doing that at the funeral. Those those protesters are legit, you know. Like, no, sorry, they're not legit as illegitimate, but they they really do exist. I they were just here a few months ago at Cleveland Pride, um, and, mm-hmm. and, and they're never big in number. We're not talking about tons and tons of folks, but anyone with those signs when you see them because it's it's always going to contrast with whatever the event is you know in our case it was pride so that was supposed to be celebratory in this case they're you're protesting a funeral right like what what message are you really trying to send what effect are you trying to have except to hijack the attention for yourself i mean there's no one holding one of those signs who thinks they're really going to be recruiting someone to their side it really is just about getting the attention and and it's 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 rough like it's it's really rough to interact with them and, and yeah and it, it sort of goes to my thing it's just where i said like that, that protester does that say more about the the person you're protesting or does it say about you oh, yeah, like no, like yeah what are you doing protesting a funeral how don't you have anything better to do to, to protest a funeral and i'm like yes i've i've you know that 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 happens that isn't just a a, a tv trope you know that that stuff actually They're happens real. westboro baptist church is still hanging out it's, oh god exactly jesus yeah. those people yeah the scene here where you know david kind of calms down him and keith have this conversation uh it's the most honest I've seen the two characters be towards each other so far. As I said earlier, David, there's there's just a few lines in this episode where it's just like, it's such a a, a well-written quote or or line rather, but, you know, David says, I don't know why it's so hard for me. It's almost like I agree with them, you know, referring to the protesters. And that's sad. And and, and I'm sure, obviously, you could lend a better uh, opinion on this, but I have to assume that there's people who feel like that. Where just that the protesters, the, the the voices are so loud, and I mean in your head, I don't mean physical volume, but it, it it grows to such a point where it's like, well, maybe they have a point. Yeah, that volume is a real thing, right? Like, and and we get these messages all the time, and they and they do add up, and so they get to that point where sometimes you can't separate what you've been told from what you think, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that psychology one hundred and one, and we know that, hmm. uh, but. If you're already feeling like you are associated with a minority opinion or a minority race or a minority sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, then those voices are, it's really hard to distinguish between those voices that, that we hear all the time and what's going on in our own head. So yeah, absolutely. We, you can see that a ton. Ken, I want to move over to where David finally comes out to his mother, Ruth, and just... You know, he bluntly starts it with, uh, I'm gay. Yeah. And, 
you know, there's such a quick look of happiness on Ruth's face and yeah, obviously what, what they go through, but you know, it sort of made me happy just how she was accepting of it. But then, you know, obviously the conversation got moved to timing and whatnot. Um, you know, something my previous guest, uh, Colin had brought up where nothing is unintentional on the show. Alan Ball, you know, scripting everything perfect. And, uh, to me, I noticed David enters the scene with his tie on button to the top. And once he starts getting into it, once he's opening up, he sort of, you know, loosens his tie and un- unbuttons that top button. And, you know, that's just a nice little, uh, what's the word? I always struggle with this word. Subtlety imagery of just, you know, David's really opening up to Ruth in that moment. David, you know, says how Ruth manages or tolerates David being gay because she's his son, not because she accepts it. I don't know. Well, let me ask you first. Did what? What did anything jump out to you from this conversation they're having? Because well, I did a different. I did a different read on the tie. Um, I actually. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Thought as that he was very much being his father, right? And so he was. He was buttoned up, and he was uh, embodying, not embalming, um, embodying, (laughs) uh, embodying his father and the masculinity there, and the I am. I am straight father, and then. As he was able to loosen that, he was able to be himself more. So I, I, I thought, you know, because he's had to step into this role um, that uh, he, it has boxed him in quite a bit. And so he was releasing it. That, the way I saw it was that he was releasing himself from that a little bit. But I, I might be throwing too many metaphors in there of the tie. Well, no, I'll say that again because I, I, I thought we were in agreement. I, I, I saw when he loosened this tie that that was him like, being able to open up to Ruth and kind of talk more honestly. Oh, no, I, I think so. But I think it was also him distancing himself from his father. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I see what you mean. Because his father was, you know, he was the, the patriarch and the tie-wearing, yeah. buttoned-up guy. And David mm-hmm. has, so, has so much had to step into that role mm-hmm. uh, to take his father's place, especially this early on um, in, in this first season. And so separating himself from that was the only way he was really able to be more comfortable and talk to his mo- to his mother. Oh, funny. That, that, that's interesting. Yeah, you pulled that out of it. Um, was there anything else from the conversation that, because uh, the, the, the other, I mean, I, I love the conversation between them, but, you know, just sort of, you know, David, you know, sort of agreeing that, you know, I know what you want me to be and you accept me because I'm your son, not necessarily because I'm gay. But the other part, and it was more the comedy and just how adorable Ruth is as a character where, you know, she says, how, I don't I don't I don't get to love a part of you like you were a piece of chicken. Um, and yeah. the other part, too, when David says how, Ooh. you know, Nate had to distinguish himself as one of the Fisher's Fisher children by way of, <laughs> you know, just by being outspoken. I, I think the significant piece for me with Ruth in this one was um, the she really wanted it on her terms and right part of the journey, but it's David's journey, right? Like it's his coming out process. It's his, it's his internal struggles. And so I, I thought it was a really salient moment for her to just say, but I want, I wanted to know earlier and I wanted to have this conversation earlier. And, and David so simply retorted, but that's not where I was at that moment. And I thought that that was perfect. It was, yeah, exactly. David, that's not where he was. He wasn't in a place to have a healthy conversation. And now he mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. 
I also like the line where David David says to Ruth, I don't think you ever knew who I was. Yeah. And you know, I just love that it's such it's such and it's not even disrespectful lines. It's just open conversation between, you know, loving family members where like yeah, like it made me, you never really understood who I was and you know, it, this is all under the guise of, you know, every day they woke up and they were funeral directors. You know, they woke up and they lived above, they were in a funeral home 24-7. Yeah. You know, the point where where Nate, uh, where Nate David had said that Nate had to be outspoken to distinguish himself, David is sort of, and it's a common theme within the Fishers of, you know, that was David's way of rationalizing, you know, the, the lack of communication between them. Absolutely. And sort of here like yeah like this was this was when david was comfortable and and it's been teased because every time ruth wants to talk about it david just kind of you know can we talk later and switches the conversation and whatnot i i i walked away with it i walked away from it like i'm glad they had that conversation i guess there was still more to be had Mm -hmm. but what you said earlier is that coming out isn't a i don't want to mistake your words here but coming out isn't a done and done process it's not like you come out and then like oh that's it now you know moving on it's a it's a uh how do i say Uh, not eventual it's a work in progress yeah well it's um it it can feel like that um but it is more (laughs) it is more of a continuous journey i mean even to the same person right like uh, individuals come out to their mom and okay i'm gay but then they might accept okay that, that he likes other guys but then Maybe there's a processing on a parent's part of, oh, wait, that means he also, like, but he's not sexual with other guys, right? Or he's not dating other guys. Like many, many, you hear one of my favorite examples is is parents saying, okay, I'm fine with you being gay as long as you uh, don't date other men. Okay, well, then I don't, (laughs) I don't think you got the concept, um, right? So even with an individual, it's a continuous coming out process. And, and not only am I dating other men and having sex with them, but maybe we're going to get married or maybe we're going to be seen out and about. So even for an, an individual coming out to one person, it still is a continuous process there as well. Mm-hmm. Ken, to close out the episode, well, actually, you know, let me first say here, uh, there's a, when, when Brenda finally has Billy committed uh, just a little show nugget here. The the first doctor that Brenda is talking to is actually Alan Ball. He has his own little oh, I didn't guest. Know that. Yeah, yeah. I had seen. If I'll tell you what, if I had not watched so many like behind the scenes from this and American Beauty, I would have not picked up on it. But as soon as the the camera set out, my mind was like, I know who that is. I know who that is. Oh, it's obviously Alan Ball. Nice. Uh, just a little nugget if you go back and watch. That's, you know, his own little cameo. Um, but, yeah, to close out the episode, uh, you know, David Psyche again in the form of Marcus. Uh, hey, you know what? As I'm reading my notes here, it's kind of exactly what you say was, you know, he's te- teasing David about how coming out to his mother <laughs> essentially solved nothing. He even teases him as to go to pull out his phone to, you know, when he pulls out his phone to call Keith, he kind of teases him. You know... Ken, I am not someone who is religious. Uh, I don't, you know, my intent isn't to disrespect anyone who is religious. It's just not my thing. And I, you know, I'm going to assume we took this scene differently just because when when I saw him go down to his knees and, you know, pray to a higher being, I don't know, I found that so much more infinitely sad 
of what he's going through. And, yeah. you know, he's, he's just begging, please take this pain away. Ah, just the idea of him when he's rocking on the floor, just begging, you know, he's just looking up and just, you know, hoping for something, right? Um, you know, to have his pain taken away. As someone who doesn't believe in doing that, to, to get on your knees and pray, you know, it just tore my heart apart to see David doing that. You know, it, that's sort of his last gasp attempt without doing something drastic. How did yeah. you take this final scene? I think so. I, I mean, look, we can even take, I, I don't want to take faith out of it completely. And yeah, okay. well, no, I, I probably have to look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a gay Jew from New Jersey. I don't know a lot. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I, I think you have an individual here who's experiencing pain and wants it to go away. And, and I think that's as basic as it gets. And, and what do I do? I don't know what to do to make the pain go away. In this case, you know, he's turning towards his faith to try to, to reconcile that. Um, for others, you know, unfortunately for others, uh, there are mental health, health, mental health issues. For others, there are alcohol and other drug issues. You know, people come up with a lot of really not great coping mechanisms uh, yeah. in order to, to deal with that lack of acceptance. Um, and by the way, again, that lack of internal acceptance. Right, right. Uh, And that's all this is right now for David, at least, right? Exactly. Because he's struggling so much inside of trying, you know, uh, getting out. Yeah, that, uh, Ken, that sort of wraps up our episode. You know, David's David's struggle is at least, I mean, I guess David kind of grows into the hate has grown. I'm sorry, the internal hate has grown to a point of this. That was sort of his arc for this episode, where it was a lot more repressed earlier in this, in this, in the, in this, in the show, in the series, and now it's sort of gotten to the point of I, I haven't watched the finale, so I, I honestly don't remember how this plays out into the next episode. But just in terms of David for this episode, you would say like, yes, that's his character arc, where he just it, it, it he's acknowledging it that much more. I, I really do think it's it's look what this is. It's another step in his journey, and there right, it is. right. That, you know? This was a step he took. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, Ken, that sort of wraps up our episode. Uh, any final thoughts on the episode overall or the series actually? Cause you know, I, I usually, I, and I sort of asked it in the form of what you thought about David, but just your thoughts of six feet under or this just episode, just a, a summarize or like, I mean, this, this is a show and certainly this episode is about being your fully realized self and what it looks like to be you know, to be who you are. Uh, and, and I think all of the characters really do struggle with that, where they have this internal life or even this funeral home life, and they have the life that they want to be leading. <laughs> so I think this episode is a great example of, of what happens in the whole series of how can I take steps to be my more fully realized self, where I am not compartmentalizing, I am not shutting stuff away, uh, but where my healthiest self is one where I'm able to express all parts of me. So it's a, it's a great episode to get at that. Oh, great, great, Ken. Ken, uh, it was really a blessing. Uh, you really, again, I said I said from the start, when the first thing I did when I listened to your, your podcast, I was like, geez, uh, <laughs> smart. And uh, here we are at the episode then, and it's like, yeah, you, you brought some really great stuff to it. So I, I wanted to thank you for that. Uh, I highly recommend you go ahead and check out Ken's podcast. Uh, this show is so gay. You're on all major platforms. Yes, actually, you said in the beginning, but iTunes is probably the easiest, and then yeah, whatever yeah. there. And people can stroll on over to thisshowissogay.com. 
Great. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely my treat. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> what an absolute treat. This, this really was super fun for me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ken. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. We're on Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play. Uh, you can email me with questions or comments on this episode, and I really would like to hear from people if you disagreed with anything me or Ken said. Uh, I'm at diggingsixfeetunder at gmail.com. You could tweet at me on Twitter. I'm at diggingpodcast. Uh, we just launched our website, and we're sort of on the ground stages on there. But I just uploaded a few guest spots I did on other podcasts. So, you know, please head over and I have the whole library up there. And please join me next week as we discuss the finale of season one titled Knock Knock uh, with writer Robert Dean and author of the new book, The Red Seven. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast. Join us on the next episode as we review each episode of HBO's original television series, Six Feet Under. Please search and subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes under Digging Six Feet Under. The Digging Six Feet Under podcast is in no way affiliated with HBO or Six Feet Under. And the views expressed here are solely that of the hosts. No infringement is intended.